0: Christmas special. A very Merry Christmas from Andrew, Dave, and Kelly.
1: And welcome to Tux Jam episode 107. That just make us sound very old, doesn't it? Well, I'm joined by my two usual compatriots in very high spirits, I have to say, this evening, so watch out. Uh,
2: Dave, how are you doing tonight? I am doing very well indeed, thank you, Andrew. A Merry Christmas to you and all. Oh yes, a Merry Christmas. I never said that. I should have said that because this is the Christmas
1: show. Kevy, and how are you? Feeling Christmassy yet? Hello, hello, indeed I am.
0: I'm in full-on Christmas spirit with Rudolph the red velvet-nosed reindeer on my top.
1: (laughs) And what delights have we got for our listeners tonight? Something Christmassy, I hope, other than your jumper?
0: Absolutely. Well, the thing is, everything about this episode is just screams Christmas, doesn't it? So we're going to have a look now. What was the one thing we used to always love was getting games. Yes, at Christmas. It was always about toys and games. Or what we wanted and then we maybe didn't get. But uh, we wanted toys and games. So we're going to take a look at our retro gaming distro called Retro Pie, which, surprise, surprise, is actually for the Raspberry Pi. Now, at this time, we always put up trees in our houses. We're going to go a bit off the wall here. Not, not pine, not Christmas trees. We're going to go at cherry trees. We'll look at the cherry tree note taking app. And of course, as you rightly pointed out as well, Andrew, cherries are very often included in Christmas cakes. So, I mean, it's a whole double whammy, this. So we're bursting with festive. Not
1: tenuous in the slightest, that like. Not in very, the slightest.
0: Very relevant and apposite. Definitely. That's it. So what festive delights have we seen on DistroWatch? So pass this <laughs> back to Andrew. What festive delight did you come up with?
1: Well, I found that there were a grand total of no Christmas distros on DistroWatch today. Uh, uh, I, I beg to differ. We found two. Likewise. So. Uh, yeah, Why yeah. well, yes, did you so throw it two? to see, this like? this is what hap-
0: See, <laughs> this is what happens when you come in late.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's not 3CX. It's not 4M Linux. Next one. I don't see any. Okay. I don't see any, but I, what I did see was a distribution I've never heard of before called Mabox, uh, or Maybox, but I think it's pronounced Mabox. Um, uh, oh, of
0: course, Go on, do I that don't. with your best Glasgow accent, it'll sound yes. better.
1: Oh, I'm on my Box.
0: <laughs> yeah, that sounds way better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is not, in fact, a Glaswegian distro, it's by someone (laughs) called Daniel Napora, which is not a particularly Glaswegian sounding name, uh, but the box is Openbox, I don't know what the M.A. stands for, doesn't appear to be part of his name, but it's based on Manjaro, aha, that's where the M.A. comes from, it's based on Manjaro, and it uses Openbox, hence my box. Right. Okay, so I'm you can put me back in my box now. So it is built on the latest LTS kernel, which is 6.6, but you can still get it with the 5.4 LTS kernel if you prefer. It's, as I say, a lightweight based on open box, it's got Conkey and it's got the wonderful GG menu, which I be honest, I have not heard of. But it's wonderful, it says, so it must be. It comes in at about 2.3 gigabytes, whatever flavour you tend to go for. So it's a fairly small distro, but certainly not the smallest out there. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, lightweight and based in Manjaro, and you're either in or out of your box, this might be for you.
2: Excellent. And I should call out that this is another distro that is inspired by the, the, the very late, great and much lamented Crunchbang.
1: Oh, is it? Indeed. I didn't notice that.
2: Well, no, I mean, you you actually accidentally picked up
0: on a Christmas theme there. And, you know, you actually, I actually thought of it when you actually, the way you said it, you know, surely that's a kind of, that's a regular fight and, uh, Christmas morning when there's two brothers in Glasgow. "Keys my box. No, it's my box. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Uh, f- people from so Glasgow... Go, fi- that was Christmas themed there.
1: People from Glasgow fighting? I mean, that's just a dreadful <laughs> stereotype. Bordering <laughs> racism Kevin. I'm really, really offended on behalf of all Glaswegians. I- Actually, I'm not a Glaswegian. Don't
2: tell anyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, so Dave,
0: what did you discover on this George?
2: Right, so I found the incredibly festive NixOS, which is an independent distribution based around the Nix package and system manager. Now, you may be thinking, well, NixOS doesn't sound particularly festive at all, but if you look at the logo, the logo is definitely in the form of a snowflake made up of lots of individual pairs of uh, Rudolph's antlers. So there's definitely a a Christmas theme going on here. There has been a suggestion made they're actually Lambda symbols, but uh, no, it is definitely Christmassy. This new version of NixOS, or Nixos, I'm not quite sure which one you would pronounce it, is version 23.11, which upgrades LL-MVM build software and also introduces GNOME 45, a version called Riga. Lots of new features coming in with the new version of GNOME. And to be honest with you, as far as the release notes are concerned, there's not a lot else to tell you other than the fact, have we have we reviewed NixOS? Because looking mm. at it, it does seem familiar. Yes, we have uh, quite a while ago, but we uh, that
1: were quite a while could mean two episodes ago, given my memory. But, yeah, uh,
2: we, I'm sure we have. Yes, um, it, it sounds like something we have done recently because I remember the the whole idea of redistributable package builds and how everything kind of runs in isolation.
0: Well, it was quite a while ago because it was. Tux Jam Fifty One on the released on the eighteenth of May twenty sixteen. So that's quite a while ago.
2: Well, I wasn't it? part of the show then. Goodness, yes. Well, well, yeah. Both hosts, so it's just myself and
0: Andrew. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So
0: that was a while ago. And in fact, we had two comments for that episode. We had one from Mike McGill saying thanks for the play, chaps. Sorry to disappoint. My name's Irish, not Scottish. So we must have accidentally referred to my Scottish. <laughs>
1: Oh, Mike McGill, yes, because that's um, a Magnitude track that I would have picked. I was listening to Mike's stuff the other day, yeah, he's good.
0: All right, well, yep, and also our uh, resident poster, Peter Patterson.
2: I was waiting for that. Yep,
0: (laughs) so that's our two comments. It's all all good being a Celtic cousin. (laughs) Yeah, so there you go, so maybe it is time to maybe have a consider having another look at that, uh, because that was quite a while ago. Mm. Yes. Right then, so the festive delights continue. Now everybody loves a bit of snow, don't they? They love the Alpine World Cup. So of course, Alpine Linux. We cannot go without that. So Alpine Linux version 3.19.0 has been released. Now for those who don't know Alpine Linux, it's a community-based, community-developed operating system. It's totally independent. It's not based on Debian or Red Hat or anything. It is independent. It's from I think it's from Norway if I remember rightly. Some I think it's a Scandinavian country anyway. And it's main it's primarily designed actually for things like routers, firewalls, VPN, and servers, etc. But you can actually run it as a desktop if you want. And this specific one, it's I mean it's got a bunch of different updates. The it's a stable series, this particular update. And it's got Linux kernel 6.6, GCC 13.2, Perl 5.38, so a few other ones, GNOME 45, KD applications 23.08, KD frameworks 5.112. But the big thing is, it is, this is the first release which officially supports the Raspberry Pi 5. Mm, so, yeah, so this, mm. I think this is the first actual distro that I've seen on DistroWatch that's announced that, as far as I'm aware. I mean, I, I'm not a serial viewer of which I have to confess, but this is the first one I've seen that has declared that on the show note, the release notes. So, yeah, so that's uh, Alpine Linux 3.19.0. Right, then, so I think it's about time for a tune. What do we see? Oh, yes.
1: Something yeah. Christmassy, perhaps?
0: Absolutely. Everything tonight is kind of Christmassy. So this is Zaton with Jingle Bells.
2: So for our distro re- review this time around, as Kevin mentioned at the start, we are looking at uh, a distribution called RetroPie, which is, as the name might suggest, uh, a very, very, very old pie. So, Andrew, how did you get on with the, the tough crust of RetroPie? Well, as it happens to me, I did eat a
1: somewhat stale pie, for real thought. <laughs> But that is not what you're asking me about. (laughs) You're asking me about the distribution for the Raspberry Pi and I believe other small board computers that allows you to have a platform to emulate not quite all, but many old, mainly 8-bit platforms, some more modern, uh, that you might play games on. So it's Retro as in Retro Gaming that runs on the Raspberry Pi. First thing is the Retro Pi website's very nice. It's got nice, clean instructions on it. I, it's as simple to flash to an SD card as any Raspberry Pi distribution. There's a number of ways to do it. I was, I'm was i on Linux, so I use the old DD method and being careful not to wipe my hard drive when using a low level write to uh, an SD card. So I did that and then I shoved it in. My Raspberry Pi 4 is busy, so I couldn't shove it in that. So my Raspberry Pi 3, it was available, so I put it in there and i had an old playstation 3 ps3 controller it actually isn't a sony one it's one of these knockoff ones you could buy in a supermarket that doesn't have any branding that means anything but it works fine and i've used it before so i used that and i shoved the usb dongle that came with it into the raspberry pi booted it up with sd card inserted into it all worked flawlessly And then it just went through and I had to, in the config, when it told me I had to press the up button, I pressed the up button. When I pressed the circle button or whatever it was called, I pressed the circle button. At the end, I had one slight glitch and it said it asked me to press the hotkey. And I "Mm, don't know what the hotkey should be. This is where reading the manual does help. So I went back, read the instructions, and it turns out this is the key that you use in combination with pressing other buttons to quit out and reset do other sort of meta things. It's like a meta key, really. And on the PlayStation 3 controller, the home button is the ideal key for that. So I'd, that was a little hiccup, but it was just a result of me not reading the manual. One thing I did decide to do, and I didn't like, the default recommended layout for a PlayStation 3 controller had what would be the X button on the PlayStation being the back key, and what would be the circle. Button on a PlayStation controller being the select key—that to me is backwards from what I'm used to in a PlayStation 4. I went through the process again and switched them around. I'm so used to doing that the PlayStation 4 to have them backwards was, yeah, it was just like going to mess with my muscle memory. So I had to do that as well. Not a problem, but I thought maybe that's the difference between a PlayStation 3 and a PlayStation 4. I don't know, but that's one thing I did differently. And then I hit the next problem, and I guess this is the problem that you're going to have with RetroPie in many emulation places where it says in big letters on the website, we don't provide the ROMs because of copyright problems. You have to go and find them yourself. In the old days, that used to be fine. You could just go to ROM sites and download them, but now you go to ROM sites and they're just full of adware and bloatware and trying to make you download all kinds of garbage and pictures of scantily clad women pop up when you're not expecting them. So it's probably not safe for And work. also
0: when the wife walks into the room as well, guaranteed. <laughs> yes, indeed. They have yes. a radar for that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, so I was less than impressed. But Kevin pointed me in the direction of Archive.org. Archive.org have a lot of stuff, but quite a lot of their stuff you can only really play in their online emulators. So it was not that. I mean, they had quite a lot of downloadable ROMs, But there was quite a few things that I wanted to get, which I couldn't because I guess there was copyright problems even there. I did find a YouTube video by, I think, a YouTuber called Bytes and Bits, which was quite useful in guiding me in setting up the Spectrum emulator, the ZX Spectrum. For those of you outside the UK, this was a company set up by Clive Sinclair in the early, well, late 70s, early 80s and produced the ZX80, ZX81, and the ZX Spectrum, which was the, by far the most popular. And I think if you're in the States, if I said Timex, the Sinclair Timex something or another, that's probably what you might know it as. So very popular 8-bit micro here in the UK, uh, loads of games. So I didn't have one myself, but I had lots of friends that did, so I thought I'll give that a go. I went to this Bytes and Bits YouTuber, and that guided me through the process of setting up. A spectrum emulator which is really quite fiddly because out of the box the keyboard for the spectrum won't work you couldn't use the joystick or uh, the the controller. I followed the instructions Bytes and Bits gave in his YouTube videos some of it worked I got the keyboard working but I just could not get the PS3 controller to work with any spectrum games so that was a little bit of a frustrating experience Manic Miner I think was the very first game I ever played in the ZX Spectrum so I got that downloaded and I got that working with the keyboard. It was as frustrating and hard and I was as bad at it as I was back in the 80s. Couldn't get off the first level. Nothing wrong with the emulator I should say it's just that it's actually quite a tough game. In that video he also recommended a place called EMU EMU Paradise. Said that was a great place to get roms. I went to that What I wanted was to get the Centipede game, because that's one of my favourite games. Recently, I went to the Cambridge Museum of Computing History and I played Centipede on an original arcade machine with the rollerball and uh, the buttons. And I loved it. So I thought, well, yeah, I really want to play uh, Centipede. Not on the Spectrum, but on an arcade machine. Emu Paradise, this website, seems to have pretty much shut down. I mean, the website still works, but when you get to a ROM, try and download it, you get a link to an apologetic post by the maintainers of the site saying, sorry, it's just got too difficult with copyright problems to do this service anymore. So it doesn't work. Actually, in the end, I never managed to download Centipede. I've got something else to say about Centipede in just a minute, but I did go to the MAME dev website. And MAME is the arcade emulator that I believe is used in RetroPie. So the MAME dev... They've come to an arrangement with some of the original copyright holders of certain games. So I got an arcade version of something called Super Tanks, uh, which I got to work. It was quite difficult as well, you know, to a modern gamer, these retro games from the early 80s are very difficult. I managed to get uh, super tanks working and actually managed to kill some baddies in that, so I was quite pleased. It worked perfectly, I should say, and the sound worked perfectly on this and all the Spectrum games I tried as well. So that was good. Well, I should say I did find the RetroPie instructions good... But there was little gaps in them, I found, where a beginner would get lost. Like, for one thing, I wanted to transfer my ROM files. I would download them on my laptop, and then it would be... I could use a USB stick, and there was a way it documented it doing that. And I did try using the USB stick method, and it did work. But I couldn't really be bothered taking a USB stick out of one machine and plugging it into the Raspberry Pi and out again and back in. So I to go the SSH route and use SCP, so that's the SSH secure copy. So that way I could just copy ROMs directly from my laptop onto the RetroPie, because the RetroPie doesn't have a browser or anything like that, not that I found anyway. So I could download it in my browser and my laptop, and then use SCP, SSH copy, to put it in the right folder for emulation. But the problem I had was I couldn't see how to get to enable SSH. Uh, there was instructions in the RetroPie website those instructions kind of assumed that you were doing it the first time you booted it up, whereas I wasn't. I'd already booted it up the first time. And then what you had to do was quit out of emulation station, then in the command line, type raspy hyphen config to get into raspy config to enable SSH. And then, and I guess this next bit, you had to type emulation hyphen station to start emulation station again, which is how the front end basically for RetroPi. That wasn't documented in the instructions for how to get SSH working. So, yeah, it's a nice website, nice instructions, but I felt, well, if I was a beginner and I just wanted to play the games and get the ROMs, yeah, there's a few gotchas like that where you'd have to either do your homework and learn something new or consult somebody who knew a bit more about Linux than they assumed you would on the RetroPie website. Anyway, so... Back to Centipede, I really wanted to play Centipede, but I just couldn't find anywhere that I could download a ROM. At least, maybe there was a site full of adware and bloatware downloads I had to evade that I just couldn't be bothered with. Um, But I never got my Centipede ROM, sadly. But I did read a little bit about Centipede. Now, did you know that the Centipede arcade game that was made by Atari in 1981 was developed by two coders, one of which was female, which was very unusual at that time and still is, I'm sad to say, quite unusual. But the f- not only was it a female coder, but the game was specifically designed to appeal to women. And I must be a woman because I love Centipede. It's my favourite arcade game. <laughs> <laughs> it had no sort of male stereo. It wasn't like a fighting game with some muscly guy like Tekken or Street Fighter or whatever. It was designed deliberately to appeal to women and women apparently really liked it at the time. Uh, I did not know this. The other thing that amused me about it is I went through and clearly there was a lot of rip-offs of the, the concept of the game and Centipede, some people just called it Centipede, others called it Millipede. Millipede,
0: uh, so, I remember Millipede.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Millipede. Uh, there was a game, a version for the Spectrum called Spectipede. There was Caterpillar, with spelt with a C. There was Caterpillar, spelt with a K. And here's my absolute favourite name, Mega Legs. <laughs> mega Legs. <laughs> they could have gone Mega Legs. So that's peed, where that no. came from, right? Mega Meg. Legs, yes, Mega Legs. Yeah, I, I don't um. know why. I just found that hilarious. I was killing myself laughing. <laughs> you know, I can imagine a lot of people staying up late. We're going to get sued if we call it Centipede. What should we call it? Well, Mega Somebody's already done Mega Pede. Mega Legs! That's brilliant. Yeah, let's go for the Mega Legs. Anyway, so. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with RetroPie. The emulation was generally very good. If I had more time to play retro games, I probably would be spending a lot more time with RetroPie. Sadly, I don't have enough time to do all of the modern day stuff I want to do. I have to be honest though, when it comes to retro gaming, I really like to play with the real hardware. It's not quite the same to me to play it on an emulator. I mean, yeah, it's better than nothing, I suppose. But I'd rather go back and play it in an original Spectrum, to be honest, or an arcade cabinet, which I obviously cannot. You can't have lots of arcade cabinets cluttering up your house unless you're mega rich with mega legs. RetroPie is great, but not all that straightforward to use, in my opinion. So that's what I thought. Kevy, how did you get on with it? Very straightforward
0: installer. I just used Pi Imager. I didn't even bother going to the site purely because I remember last time when I downloaded and then used the Pi Imager with the... The one I downloaded, it did, it it argued with me quite a bit. So I just thought, let's have a look. So oddly enough, Retro Pi, when you clicked on gaming distros, was the second one, not the first one. I can't remember what the first one was, but on the list for, in the Pi image, it actually suggested it was the second distro. So that was fine. I took a look on the SD card and I was, it was a 32 gig card I put in. So I thought, yep, that's fine. Had a double check on it. Oh, good. It's created all the home folders and even the actual ROM folders, everything. So I thought, yep, no bother. What I'll do is I'll stick a bunch of ROMs onto it. And a lot of the ROMs are tiny. And it just said, no space, no space. I'm going, you are not telling me that RetroPie is 32 gig. No chance. So I fired up GParted and noticed that... It was well under one gig, but I had 31 point something gig of unallocated space. <laughs> for flip's sakes. I just unmounted the card and then just edited the partition so it took up the whole SD card. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that was that difficult to do, but uh could not do that of uh, out of the box without me doing that. But anyway, anyway. Well,
1: so sorry, it sorry, Kev, just sorry to interject, but actually mine did do that for me. It did resize. The, I saw it doing it uh, in the first boot. Ooh. It did, it did oh. resize for me. So I don't know why we had a different experience there. Oh, oh! it did it at boot time, did it? The f- on the first boot, I think it... Ah, it, it, okay. It, the first right. boot it went See,
0: I, I didn't even take it out of my computer. I just flashed the image and then used my file browser to go onto it. Yeah,
1: because I had right. the ROMs already on my PC. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. Okay. In the first boot uh, on the
2: Raspberry Pi, ah. it enlarges it. That's Yes, that's oh, where you okay. came across. Right,
0: okay, so that's interesting to know. That's good oh. to actually
1: have. Mm-hmm.
2: I've got it in my head that if you're using the Raspberry Pi Imager, the official one, there is actually an option in the advanced settings that will automatically expand the file system for you once the image is being written. So you don't have to ah, go through the boot the boot right. cycle first, I think. Fair enough.
0: Okay then. That's fine then. Right. Now, at this point I should point out, I mean Andrew mentioned it, that to use the external storage as a US if you want the USB thumb drive to have all your ROMs on there. If you want to use it to almost like an external hard drive, then that's fine. But what you need to do, now this isn't overly, it's not, it's a bit fiddly, but it's not difficult. On the root of the drive, create a folder called retroPi dash mount. So all lowercase and no spaces. And then with your retroPi on in retroPi, you need to go to configuration page and then go to retroPi setup. And then select Configuration slash Tools. And this brings up another menu. And what you need to do is go to the very, very bottom of that menu. You can't see it on the screen. It's further down. It it takes up more space. And there's one called USB-ROM Service. Okay. And select Enable. And then you click OK. And then what you do is press Start on your controller. And then go to Reboot the System. And you do that from the Quit menu. So now. When RetroPie started up, you make sure it's booted, put your USB drive in. Took about a minute, roughly, where it was doing things and you could it was giving you a message on it. And once about the minute was done, it said completed. And what you've got then is you take the USB drive out, put it onto your computer, and everything will be set up. It pretty much just copies the home folder's layout. That's all it really does into that folder that you've made and you can put stuff in there. So that's an easy way if you don't want to go SSH. Upon boot, it's very clear that presentation is actually part of this. It's lovely, you know, lovely flash screen. You know, when you're booting, you get a nice retro style joystick appearing as Halloween. It's a logo of RetroPie and then it follows with a home, with a screen, sorry, showing that the ROMs are being scanned and then this actually affects what your homepage looks like, which I really liked. So it scanned and it detected that I had like Atari ST. It had I had Mame ones and I had SNES ones on it, and that was what came up. You know, so it was like I didn't have all the emulators listed, just the ones which had ROMs on, which it found ROMs for. So I like that touch. Then it asked me, right, we detected a controller, so I had a SNES controller which uh, I can't be bothered going to get. It's, Dave's already seen this, but it is literally just a copycat Nays controller. I bought this a few years ago on eBay for literally under a and I didn't expect it to work. It's worked nicely, and I'm still using it. It asked me to do all the things, and obviously the big difference with mine and Andrew's was Andrew's would have thumbsticks on it. Of course, so when it said, move the thumbstick up, move the thumbstick down, I'm like, there's no thumbstick on this. This is long before the days of thumbsticks. All you've got to do is just press and hold a button, any button. Just press and hold, and it, it just says, okay, we're skipping on. And as I found out as well, the hot key is one you... I just kind of said, yeah, yeah, go for default. And then realized, oh, no, that was quite important. <laughs> so I had to redo it.
1: Well, so, so, how, sorry, Kevin, how do you go for the default? Because it actually just asked me to press a button, and there was no default for me.
0: Well, it said it at the bottom. It said if you'd like to go just use the default option
1: press return oh I never had that or at least and I've noticed it
2: interesting I skipped mine and in skipping it it said you, we really recommend you should have something for this for the hotkey do you want to use we'll just use the default yeah. but it didn't I didn't I didn't know what the default actually was in this case yeah that was a problem
0: that was my problem so yeah. I just kind of I just hit return and that was it yeah so I did that and the, the hope screen kind of leads you to is, it reminds me, reminded me a wee bit of the way Cody used to be laid out. Yeah, so very yeah. much horizontal across the menus where I actually quite liked it. To be honest, when I saw it, I actually thought, yeah, I remember I used to, I preferred the old layout of Cody. It was nicer. It may not have been as functional, but it was nicer. As I said already, it doesn't list everything. So, I mean, if it was to list every emulator it had, you your screen would be huge, or the, the, the menu bar would be huge. It only lists the ones that you have. Now, this is where I ran into my first issue, my first major issue. And that was, I could not get the sound to work. By default, I went and checked, and it was HDMI was the uh, default output. And, okay, my monitor does not have speakers, so that's not an option for me. So I thought, right, press the menu, select sounds, and I, the only options you get are headphones or HDMI. And the Pi that I was using was the Pi. I was just on my Pi 400 just now. In fact, it's still on it. And that doesn't have a headphone jack. So I was like, "Hmm. oh, okay, then I've got my Bluetooth headphones. That's no problem. I went to the Bluetooth settings, paired my headphones, and I still didn't get any sound. And it was at that point where I noticed I went into paired devices. (laughs) And... (laughs) It actually said cannot detect buttons, so it was treating my headphones like a controller. So I was like, oh, this is really annoying. Okay, so I tinkered about quite a few minutes in and out of things and check, and I just couldn't get anywhere. So I decided at this point, right, let's actually go and do what I should have done in the first place. Look at the RetroPie forums and sound through the Bluetooth is not enabled by default, right? Now, what I think I'm going to do here is, I think I'm going to put these steps onto the show notes. I know we don't normally do this detailed show notes, but I do think this is important because I really struggled to find these and it took me a couple of attempts. So thankfully, with the Pi 400, this was, I mean, this may may or may not work for others, but I imagine it would. Right. So first of all, if you press F4, it takes you completely out of the nice UI and drops you into a shell. Okay. A terminal. The first thing you have to do is install pulse audio dash module dash Bluetooth, just using sudo apt install that. Okay. Then you have to add the user to the Bluetooth group, which is just sudo add user. And the default user is Pi, Pi, and then Bluetooth. Okay. The next thing we had to do was edit the file slash etc slash pulse slash default dot pa. And you have to add the line load dash module space module dash switch dash on dash connect. Okay, so again, I'm not really expecting you to follow along. I'm just I will have it in the show notes. So you've got to save and exit nano's on it by default. So I just use nano. Use whatever editor you're comfortable with. Then, you have to edit the file slash etc slash bluetooth slash main dot conf. And there's the general section, and you need to add the line enable. Now, this is a capital E, enable, equals source with a capital S, comma, sync with a capital S, comma, media with a capital M, comma, socket with a capital S, okay? Okay. Sorry for being so specific, but just in case anybody's actually trying to do this from the podcast, I want to make sure that they can. So again, save and exit the file. Now, just reboot the system then with pseudo reboot, because I actually couldn't figure out how to get back into the graphical mode. Pseudo reboot, but you have to reboot at this point anyway for the Bluetooth stuff to take effect. So then when you're back in your home screen, select Bluetooth, pair your device. If you have paired it, forget it and then pair it again. And then one last thing you need to do is for connecting. In the Bluetooth settings, go to configure Bluetooth connect mode and select background. Otherwise, if your headphones are not around at time of boot, they will not connect. Okay, so make sure that's set to background so it constantly checks for it. Now we're done. Now, okay, that's not major to anybody who's useful, who's used the Linux terminal for a few years. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to do a niche thing here. I was trying to connect Bluetooth headphones. Surely that's a really simple thing. And to be honest, that's the default audio method for most people. So that was a very long-winded and cumbersome way. There's another reset-up issue. Now, this wasn't a game-changer, but I don't know if you guys noticed, by default, if you use this on a monitor rather than a TV... Then you will get a black border around it. Did you, did either of you notice that?
1: No, I didn't actually. No,
0: there's a black border. No. It's not mega, but it's well on my screen. It was maybe about eight mil all the way around a black border, complete black border. And I, I was I like, noticed. I'm, I, I was just like, I'm not wanting that to be honest. This is actually the underscan option. And what it is, it's because TVs by default will actually overspill a bit. So it's a compensation thing. So it's assuming you're gonna connect this to a TV rather than a monitor. So it's actually dead easy. All you gotta do is go to the configuration again, just standard configuration, select Raspi Config and then select Display Options, go to Underscan and select No. Okay, that's all you do. You will need to reboot though again for this to take effect. One thing that you will notice, and this is maybe why Dave had maybe a bit of an issue with this distro, is that it's designed for everything to be done through a joystick or a controller. All the controls, everything, are designed to work. And the thing is, it actually works very nicely. The only time you need a keyboard is when you go into the deeper parts like where I was talking about there. But even then, if you don't need to type anything, the controllers still work in those kind of deeper setting parts. But it it takes you out of the graphical and drops you to the terminal pretty quickly. You kind of notice then you need a keyboard, which is where the Pi 400 was ideal for this. On the Super Nintendo, because that was my my favourite console when I was younger, B was select. And in this, by default, B took you back a stage. A selected. So it was a wee bit kind of alien, but... I didn't want to switch them around like Andrew did, because that would have switched them around in game, which would have meant you were actually the wrong way around when you were playing the game. I lived with it for the actual screens. So the one thing that I did notice, ROMs were listed very nicely in alphabetical order. Pressing B on the controller loaded a ROM. I didn't have any issues. It is just a list. It's a text-based list. The artwork isn't there by default. However, if you want the artwork, that's fine. Right, If you press Start on your controller, and then there's the option at the top is Scraper. Select Scraper and Scrape Now. A word of warning. right? A real word of warning here. If you're like me and you've got thousands of ROMs, don't do this unless <laughs> you've got a lot of time, because it asks you to confirm which art you want and which game it actually is for every single ROM. Oh. Yeah, so oh literally don't do For something that's purely aesthetic, don't do it. Don't, <laughs> so unless you want to spend a lot of time, then you just don't do it. Now, the other thing I did notice was I thought, wait a minute, I'm doubtful that RetroPie has its own emulators. You know, it's not built in. Rather, it's all it's really doing is pulling emulators together. And when you're kind of used to the emulators, very often a lot of the settings are very different. So I thought, right, let's see if I can get... So I went on to the RetroPie webpage and found very quickly from reading... Hitting tab on the keyboard when you're using a particular emulator will open up options, but those options are specific to that emulator only. So if you want to configure the SNES one a certain way, press tab when you're using the SNES one, will edit the options purely for that. That was my issues with setting it up, right? But I have to confess, once I set it up, it ran beautifully. I didn't need to touch the keyboard even once after that. Everything ran nicely, and the best of it was we guy. Well, maybe best worst. Can't figure out which one. We guy actually said, "Oh, what's that? You've got a controller. I'm going to play this." So of course I lost my computer. Well, I didn't lose a computer because he wasn't using it, but he was using my screen. <laughs> he was using the screen for the best part three days, and it was it was really funny. And I was showing, yeah, this is actually where gaming has just gone so much the way of the the modern world with the modern kids. You know, they can do, you can do everything. You can do, all the games now you can't really lose. He was getting so angry. He started playing Super Mario Kart, and I'm going, you do not break that controller, that's my only controller for the SNES. He was getting so angry because he he was, I think he had played it about, maybe about six races, and he couldn't figure out why he wasn't in pole position or winning any of them. I'm going, no, you actually had to be good. You didn't just get this at first place just for doing the thing. You actually have to be good at this game. And then he was trying Super Mario World. That was hilarious. He just got so frustrated with it. He tried Super Mario Brothers the original and again he was going absolutely nuts. And then I heard him yelling and shouting and I'm going what's going on here? He was playing Street Fighter 2 and didn't know any of the buttons or any of the moves. <laughs> and he he basically, he, he managed to win his first game. I thought this is easy. And then got destroyed in every other <laughs> Match <laughs> so it was actually quite funny watching because I'm thinking, yeah, this is actually pretty typical of the teens these days. They just think they can go ahead and win everything. So this is actually, a, I think this would be a good thing for teaching me that maybe patience, but certainly endurance. You know, no, you're not going to get it first time. You actually have to work for it. So the gaming industry has got you know, a lot to say. And the other thing that I've forgotten about, to be honest, and shows you I've gone into this habit he couldn't fathom out this continues. You only had so many lives. Yeah, he was that used to just oh no, you die, you respawn. You die, you respawn. You die, you respawn. And he got so angry when games were saying game over. He was, what do you mean game over? Was, That's it. You got to restart all over again. The the one thing I did like actually was. The ability to save. You can save a ROM exactly in the state where you are now. So if you get called for dinner or if you have to leave straight away, you don't have to get to a save point. Uh, there's one thing I do like about it. And most of them, the emulator are like this, uh, it's very easy just to click Save. Just click Menu Options, Save, and you can return to that exact point later. What did I think? I thought, great, but setup is there. But one thing that I would say was, you look at... I mean, I played SNES, and I mean, there's... I've got about 2000 SNES ROMs. Of course, I owned every single cartridge for anyone listening. The SNES thing that was brought out, the SNES Mini, had 20 games. Yeah. You know the one I'm meaning? Mm-hmm. Yes. Had 20 games. If you can find it, it's going for over 300 quid. You know, you look at this for the sake of a few thousand, couple of thousand games, for the sake of the price of a pie case and a controller. You know, if you can take the time, this is well worth it, right? That's what That would be my opinion. But it's not so. A bit like the kind of old-style games. You're not going to get the hang of it straight away. It does need tinkering. It does need learning. So that was my 2 penneth, Dave, how did
2: you get on? Well, now, so it was fully my intention to set this up on the Pi 400 and test it from there. And I really, really wish I had. Instead, I made the very stupid and somewhat ill-advised decision to install it on my laptop, as they had a setup script available uh, to install RetroPie on their GitHub repo. Simples, so I thought. I lost track of time about half an hour into the installation process. It installed loads of things, downloaded lots of things, compiled lots of things. Uh, but it did do it. It did do it first time with no issues. So it, it really is just a case, if you're going to put it on a computer, an established uh, Linux machine, clone the repo, run the script, and then go and make a pasta bake or something because you're going to be there for a while. Um, Andrew and have both mentioned about the emulation station that sits in front of RetroPie. It then kicks off whatever platform that you need behind it. Now, but I think when you do the controller setup the, the, on the first launch, that it's done before it actually takes you into emulation station proper because you need emu- the controller setup in order to be able to navigate emulation station. And I think it was around about at this point that I realised I'd actually made a fundamental error. As Kevi has already called out, my controller is my keyboard. I do not have a gaming controller, which is no surprise because I'm not a gamer. I may have mentioned that once or twice before. Just to give you an idea of of what kind of problem this represents, is controller setup requires, and this is from memory, a D-pad... A, B, X, and Y in a diamond shape, two left triggers, two right triggers, and two analog sticks. Now, that's approximately 22 points of contact. Now, a handheld controller typically requires two thumbs, two or four fingers, but a keyboard requires a lot more fingers than you may possess, and that's irrelevant of how many fingers you actually possess. So, what I had was WASD on the left, look it up, pl semicolon and apostrophe on the right to emulate the the, the diamond shaped four buttons on the right hand side of like your snes controller thumbs for things like space bar and and lower uh, letters and then the typical thing where you've set another key and you can't remember what it is you then go and hunt and peck for it and then you forget where your other things should be when you try and go back to the original the correct keys an absolute nightmare um front to end <coughs> so the emulation station itself. Kebby, you said that it was kind of Kodi-like. You can actually install Kodi as an option, mm. as part of the emulation station. So it's available as an add-on. So you got a full Kodi build in there as well, uh, if you wish it. But the front-end itself, it really is such a nice interface. It's very smooth. They're, to coin a phrase, it is a buttery interface. It really is. If you already have ROMs in place for your platform of choice, On the the very front screen of the emulation station, when you you do your left and right, uh, my A and D in this case, it switches between the different platforms. And the graphic representation of that platform is really high quality. And that was really nice to see. It kind of adds to the immersiveness of the interface. As has already been mentioned, there are tons of ROMs around, uh, unofficially, of course. And I went and got two libraries of games, uh, Atari 2600, which disappointed me because the one game I wanted wasn't on there and the zx spectrum library and just with those two libraries i had 462 games available now that's made choosing a game a bit of a laborious process as Kevin pointed out earlier when you're selecting a game you you have to up and down to scroll the the list now scrolling is adaptive you hold the button down it'll do it one at a time and then after a short while it'll do a page at a time and then after a short while it'll do the first two letters at a time but I even, I'm trying to think, what it was Tanks on the Atari I was trying to go for. And I, I held down S, in this case, for quite some time before it got anywhere near the T's, only to then find that Tanks wasn't there. So, very disappointing result for, for quite a large amount of effort expended. Now, the platforms that are supported within RetroPie is actually quite amazing. It's, it's quite comprehensive. You've got multiple versions of different Atari consoles and computers. Almost every Sega and Nintendo handheld that was made. I say almost, there are some that are missing. Um, Some of the the home-based home consoles as well. The ZX Spectrum, which is kind of where I gravitated towards because that was my first proper computer. So there's something in there for pretty much everybody. When it comes to gameplay... Gameplay is very much dependent, very much dependent on the game you're playing and the platform on which the game was originally intended for. So trying to play a tank-style game on an Atari 2600 with a keyboard, no. Trying to play beachhead on the Spectrum with a keyboard, well, that's yes, because that's, that's what you had. Unless you had the um, uh, any of the joystick add-ons, your keyboard was your controller. But what you then had to remember, and I think, who said this? I think it might have been—I can't remember—one of the two of you mentioned it—that you were having problems when you were playing a Spectrum game that your controller didn't work. Yes, that well, was, the reason that your was, controller didn't yeah. work—that was sorry, that was you, Andrew. The reason the controller didn't work is because it's expecting you to use a keyboard, so the controller does not come into play. So whatever the keyboard options are for your game, usually something like QAO and P for up down left right, space for fire. It would to be None use of this was QAO yeah, well, <laughs> well that that was that was a Sinclair designation.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Dave. But the thing is that there was and I think it was part of RetroArch, which emulation station uses, RetroArch allows you to map movements of your controller to keys inside your emulator. So I mapped right for, for per game. So I did do, went through the process which I saw in that Bytes and Bits video. He
2: explained how to do that and I followed that but it didn't work. Uh I don't know why. Right, okay. Did you try any of the controller options that would have been built into the Spectrum game? So often you would have like your Kempston joystick. Some of the later games allowed for the interface to plug in
1: yeah controllers. I did try that again as explained in the Bites and Bits video that I watched,
2: but that didn't work either. Ah, that's that's unfortunate. I'm going to pursue that, I'll mention that in a second. But in terms of, of gameplay, I did notice that even with my i7, there is a noticeable control lag. I noticed it more on the Spectrum games than I did with the Atari ones. I would imagine that in fact having a, a Bluetooth controller has probably increase that level of lag because of how Bluetooth works. But I would imagine this to be more of a symptom of running a gaming emulator on a multitasking operating system rather than running what is essentially a single program on a microprocessor, which is literally doing nothing else, talking about the original games. So you have to take that obviously into account when you're you're playing these things. There's a lot of layers of, of abstraction between you and the device you're holding on your hand and the things you're seeing on the screen. There's a lot of translation that has to happen. So when you press up, you're going to see double, triple-digit latency in milliseconds, not seconds, uh, before your action on the controller actually represents something on the screen. And there's not a lot you can do about that, unfortunately. But otherwise, the the, the graphics on the gaming it is really nice. The visual experience is quite something, particularly if you grew up with some of these games. I found playing Beachhead, which is a game that I played stupid hours <laughs> yes. on the ZX Spectrum, well, you you had to because it took probably about four minutes to load from tape. So when you're spending so much time loading stuff up from a tape, uh, you want to you know get your money's worth in terms of time. It was quite nostalgic. Now, the question that you're probably thinking to yourself is, you know, Dave is not a game gamer. He's he's not going to bother with this. it's uh, going to go into the bin. You're wrong. I'm actually going to play with this some more because I think that as a platform, it has a lot of promise. And that this is probably. A bit weak of me to say this, because I think RetroPy has been around for quite some time. But from somebody who's coming into this, having used RetroPie for the first time, I, I like what it delivers. I like what it represents. Obviously, not until I get myself a controller. I don't think I should touch this again until I get a controller, because the experience of trying to do this on a keyboard, it really takes away from it. It really detracts from what the platform, what RetroPie as a distribution, which is what it ultimately is, is trying to achieve. So I'm doing no service to it by trying to do it through a standard QWERTY keyboard. I'm also tempted to consider the option of creating a handheld version of the RetroPie using like a small five-inch screen on top of a Pi with a Bluetooth controller and see how that works. So I might actually, once I've I've had a go with it on the computer, I may well consider sort of doing that as a project. So from that perspective, my exposure to RetroPie has actually been a phenomenal success. And I bet you didn't expect me to say that.
1: No, I did not. As you say, uh, as you said, I had you marked down as a non-gamer or maybe a, just a very occasional gamer. But you've clearly got a bit of, like me, the retro nostalgia
2: itch needs to be scratched, perhaps. I came from the generation when home computing and, and gaming using home computers kind of exploded. Mm. Just as just, just the the home computer market was starting to find its feet, but before the games consoles came in and ruined it. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah, because so, that is exactly how I viewed it. Because <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> the, the old it, it but the Spectrums, the BBC Micros, the Commodore 64s, or the Vic 20 before that. Mm. And I could go on naming stuff, maybe Apple, Apple 2s even before that.
2: Apple 2, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: All of these things, you could play games in them, but at some point you would think, I could write my own software. I could write my Mm -hmm. own games. And yes, when the Nintendo NES came out, it was kind of like, yeah, don't bother with that anymore. Yeah, you you have to be a professional games developer to write a
2: game. Um, Right, right. And it takes some of the fun away from it from, it as well.
1: I mean, to be honest, it was inevitable that, like anything, you know, like when I'm, you know, well, I say it's inevitable because you know, as computers got more powerful, you'd have to have bigger teams and more resources to develop. That's obvious now in retrospect, but there was something about being able to code on the same platform as you played that was really, really pushed me forward as a youngster, and I'm sure many other people too.
2: Yeah, don't forget that also the wear of that. Generation where the fact that you were able to achieve playing games on a system where a butterfly flapping its wings in Eastern Europe could actually jog the memory pack and crash the computer—a little ZX eighty one joke there for for those that remember that—being <laughs> able to do these kind of things, being able to load something from tape, making sure that you set the volume levels correctly, make sure you got the cables correctly. The ZX eighty one design flaw that allowed you to plug the power supply into the TV out <laughs> port. Um, you know, all those all those things were part of the computing experience of the nineteen eighties, and it's like all of that has been stolen. And I'm I'm not saying that this is this is going to take us back to that particular era, but nostalgia it means a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and obviously it's not like it used to be, but. Yeah, it does mean <laughs> mean a lot. So something like this, for somebody who is a self-professed non-gamer, maybe I am. Yeah, what you just said really resonates with me. And of course, we should
1: also mention that the whole point of the Raspberry Pi originally was to get back to that era. And the fact that you have models A and B Raspberry Pis is harking back to the model A and B of the BBC Micro. Which was also developed in Cambridge, you know. So, Cambridge is where Sinclair was, where I mentioned ZX Spectrum, ZX81. It was where Acorn was that produced the BBC models A and B. And it's where the Raspberry Pi is based now. So, it's not an accident that all these things have come together. And, no, uh,
0: <laughs> no, not at all. No, actually, yeah, like I said. Brilliant. Uh, fantastic. I'm actually glad that you, you actually had a good time with us, Dave, because I, I, you were the one I was kind of worried about thinking, is he even going to want to even try this? <laughs> you
2: you even, you even said it. I think both of you said, it. are you sure you, you're, you're happy to, to review this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah go on then. No, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad we did now. Right then. And this is a rarity
0: because, uh, I can actually sit back actually for a bit in this episode because it's not been me choosing the music. So, Dave, this is your track.
2: Yeah, so I'm quite surprised we have never played a track by this particular individual before, but I have gone and uh, and, and got permission to play this, this song. Uh, this is from an artist that I've played on the Bugcast, that's, you know, some other podcast, irrelevant to this, since right in its very, very early days. I've interviewed him at least three times. We're in constant, well, reasonable, constant contact. But he has released a song for Christmas, and he released it at the time of recording this, Exactly one week ago. So, this is Mark Marshall with Santa Claus is Back in Town.
3: With reindeer, no pack on my back. You will see me. Turn off the light. The Santa Claus is coming down your chimney tonight. Christmas time, pretty baby. It's- with reindeer, no pack on my back, you will see me coming.
1: Welcome back. So, in this next segment, we are going to review a very tenuously Christmassy-named application called Cherry Tree. And trees are Christmassy, because Christmas trees, and cherry appears in Christmas cakes. Therefore, this is extremely Christmassy, is it not, Kevy? What did you think of Cherry Tree?
0: Absolutely. You couldn't get a Christmassy app if you tried. Aye, so... This is actually just a pretty standard, to be honest, electronic notepad. And we can't actually say too much that's uh, about any more function because literally that's what it is. It's a notepad. It's an array of small icons along the top when you open it. And most of them are pretty standard formatting. You know, you get your standard kind of save, open, new uh, formatting stuff. There's two panes in front of you. One is on the left is thin, and the one on the right is your kind of main screen and takes up most uh, of the... So your main pane and takes up most of the screen. And the background of these is white. You know, so I mean, as far as starting up, I thought, why have I chosen this apart from the name? Actually, actually there is no reason why I chose it apart from the name. The name got me to choose it. So I thought, right, okay, let's just see. So... I first of all started to type, and nothing happened. And I'm going, "Uh, okay." Click on the main screen, start to type. Nothing happened. Actually, I started clicking about, and I found on the left pane I had the option of when I right clicked, I went to add node, and okay, let's add node. Now I didn't know beforehand that this was a hierarchical application, so I knew that you were going to kind of make notes. And you could have notes or sub notes from that note. So I did kind of know about that. Actually, I did notice as well when I actually right clicked and went add node, it's actually the very first icon on the top left, which uh, would have been the sensible one to place. So, but anyway, who, who needs to, who needs manuals? We go in there, uh, uh, foolhardy, definitely. <laughs> so I thought, right, let's actually have a try this because I was discussing this with uh, my co-host before the show that I have got TuxJam notes in here, there, and everywhere. There are some on my tablet, there are some on my phone, there are some on my laptop, there are some on most of them are on my desktop, there are some on some web-based services, and they're all over the place. And if I ever wanted to look them up, I would really have a problem because they're just everywhere. So I thought, right, let's actually do this. So I clicked, made a first node, called it TuxJam, and then made a sub node, and I called it, well, it says sub node. Should this not really be called, given it's called uh, Cherry Tree, should not be called a branch, but anyway, that's just my opinion, and made a branch 107. So selecting a new node brings up a wee window and this asks you to give the node a name and whether to make it bold. You know, there are options for what color you want it and what icon you want it, if if you want to use that. Uh, There are options, do you want the text to be rich text, in which case you can format it a wee bit, And that's a default option. You can have plain text or automatic syntax highlighting if you want to use this more to program with it rather than actually just text. And one thing is I looked up my word. There are loads of programming languages available. We want to talk about retro. Yeah, there's modern and retro there. I just thought... After actually recently, relatively recently, doing Open risk OS, I thought, let's see, is Pascal programming there? That's what I learned, Pascal programming on. Yep, Pascal's there. You know, so anyway, I'm not here to program. So The other thing I liked was that straight away it said, what tags would you like? So you could have tags to use in the search. Uh, you don't have to, but you can use tags. And it also actually gives you the option do you want it for this node only or do you want to also include the sub nodes when you, when you search? So yeah, I quite like that. I must admit. So I started typing and I was, I had read a wee bit by this point. So let's actually see what this is. I can't just say, yes, I typed and they appeared on screen. It's, we need to go a bit more in depth for a review. So I thought, what am I expecting? And one thing that it said was that it had an automatic spell checker and I just typed in gibberish, press space, and no red line, no anything. And I was like, ooh, ooh, this is a bit odd. So I double-checked online, and it says, yes, there is. It's Now, oddly enough, it's, they're going for really, if you're in plain text, you do not apparently get this. I didn't test it out, should have, but uh, you don't get this. It's only on rich text but it's not on by default. It's not difficult. All you got to do is click in the tools menu, and at the top, it's a very first option: uh, spell check switch on. So after switching it on, it it worked actually quite well. But it did give me a couple of times where there were very interesting misspellings. Like I had one letter out, and the thing it was trying to suggest was like a totally different word. I'm going okay, right? <laughs> so yeah, that, that bit was interesting. Right, so we'll just leave it at that. And then I thought, right, let's see, is this purely text? Can I insert images? Yep, there's an option there to insert an image. This went smoothly, but this certainly is not anything that you would use if you were making a web publishing, a web page, or a magazine, or anything like that. I mean, you certainly could do an HTML if you're on a web page, but most people these days probably don't do pure text HTML. Probably will use a program majority. So Select the image, brings up a window, and it shows you a preview of it. It gives you the option to rotate it 90 degrees, or flip it, or also resize it. Now, once you place it, there is no option to drag this around, or I couldn't find one anyway. But you can cut and paste the image, so that does work. Text cannot be wrapped around the image either, apart from the one line it's put on. You can't have it like we've got on Tux Jam, where the image is on the right and the, the text, well, usually we put the icon on the right and the show and the text flows down the left. You couldn't do that. And the other thing I noticed was the image can't be resized using the mouse. The only way is, if you want to change the image size, click on the image, click Properties, and then click Edit. Now, one thing I did like was having to type in the exact pixels you wanted the image was a bit of a paste. But if you typed in one, by default, it kept the proportions. So I did quite like that, I must admit. So if you just said, right, I want to make it 150 pixels wide, it automatically adjusted the height. So, yeah. The other feature that worked very well was the inclusion of uh, bullet points. Now you could just have a simple bullet points or you could have them as incremental numbering. There's a to-do list option which will convert each new line, as you have to have pressed a return after this, into a to-do list with a tickable box. So the box itself, you can either have blank, you can be ticked, or it can be crossed as well. So you've got the, the options there. Adding links is as easy as in any word processor, it's simply a case of uh, highlight a word, click on the hyperlink icon, which is a standard one that you would be well used to, and put in, paste or type in your URL. When working with multiple nodes, this is actually a feature I quite like, to be honest. Initially, I thought, oh, it's just listing them all as a tab on the top. and. What I realized was, it actually doesn't list them all, because I thought, this is going to get crazy. I think it'll be a bit like Firefox or something, where you've got 40 tabs open. No. It will only show you the last three you've visited. And when I was flicking in between, it was actually quite handy, because, you know, you're not liable to go between 40 at one time. You might work between like two or three. So, actually, I really like that. So, it looked nice, and it actually stopped it from being too cluttered. The search function, it it actually worked really nicely. You can search by title or by content or by tags, and you have the option to search within one node only or in the entire bit. So again, I like those features. Now at this point, I'm thinking, I'm really liking this, the organizational potential here. I had a we squint online, I just thought, what's anybody else using this for? And actually came up with some good ideas, to be honest. The one that actually I really liked was somebody who had who was a keen cook, a bit like myself because I really do like cooking. And they had actually separated their recipes all onto this. They had a fi- file that was just recipes, and it was the top layer was literally where it came from, and then you know break it down to snacks, main meals, etc. And mm-hmm. I really uh, thought that was something that I could do. It's not quite. It's like a, probably a kind of hybrid almost. It's not quite a database. It's not a pure notepad either. It's got so much more. But one thing I did think of was this would be useful if I could get this. So if I could have this to-do list on my phone, if I could get this list here or these bullet points on my phone. So I thought, right, let's have a look. So I went onto the website, couldn't find anything to do with an Android client, which was a shame. But then I thought, wait a minute, this is open source. Where host it hosted? So I went onto GitHub and there was a discussion there. And That's what I found out. This is actually maintained by a really small team. I think there's only like three people odd working on this. So somebody asked a question for a feature request for an Android app, but they were quite honest and said it's a long term goal, but right now they had neither the expertise nor the time to take on this venture. And they said, we're happy for anybody to do this, but as long as they state and declare that it is an unofficial app, it's not officially connected to Cherry Tree. As is usual in open source, sadly, there was a good few flame wars going on with people arguing about nothing, but being quite nasty about it. And then I went a bit further down, and I discovered that there was kind of one that had started and fizzled out, and the other one that was started more recently it was like started in 2020 but it seemed to am gone there's another one which started in may 2022 this is called sour cherry and it's still been actively developed but it's only one guy doing this so he says himself it's not he's not putting all his time and effort into it. he's doing it as and when he can and he's doing it because he likes cherry tree so i thought right let's actually download this let's give this a try what I did was I thought, right, I know you two are probably going to say, look, I've already got own cloud for this or Nextcloud. Yeah, you're probably right. But to be honest, having played around with Nextcloud, I don't have that much of a use for it. So I didn't really continue with it on. So I thought, let's see, can I use this? So with this Sour Cherry, I could do text editing, but only basic. I couldn't do anything. A lot of the stuff isn't quite there yet, but you can edit with basic text stuff. That's not a problem you can look at it no no bother so what i decided was not right wait a minute i've got sync thing on my phone let's just put the file i'm working on into the sync thing folder on my computer and right enough it goes there everything worked nicely so i had a to-do list i had a shopping list etc i was showing the wife she's not yet convinced you know i'm Mm -hmm. trying to get her convinced to actually see if this works so often She's, uh, she's terrible for writing things down on a piece of paper, losing the piece of paper, and then rewriting the paper and forgetting what she had. Half the stuff she got. I was saying to her, look, you could actually just type this in and then you could get it at a later point. You can edit it if you want. The second part's not really part of the review, but I just thought it's worth including because this is a real win for open source. Small group of people and people building on top of it. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But if you do fancy to organise notes, this is something where... I would actually highly recommend. Yes, if you have Nextcloud, there is no point in you having this. But if, like me, and you've maybe not so much got a use as such for Nextcloud, and you don't want to go down the route of actually the setup, then this is a viable alternative, I would say. Right, so, Dave, how did you get on with this?
2: Well, as is often the case, you've pretty much taken the wind out of my sails on this one, because I already use a note-taking app for work purposes, and I already use a note taking app for home and podcasting purposes. And the one I use at home is <laughs> in Nextcloud. So, unfortunately, going into this and looking at this application might have had slightly the wrong mindset to be able to provide a, an objective review. The one I use at work is called Dendron, which is actually a, a plugin for VS Code. It is open source. We could potentially review it in the future. I don't there are any immediate plans for doing that. I'm using Nextcloud Text, the text app, to write my review notes for this show. So if it seems like I'm comparing, yeah, sorry, but I am. Trying to step away from this and look at this from a much more objective perspective is that Cherry Tree is very much a graphical application. I know that sounds really, really obvious, but it is kind of graphical plus plus. Everything is WYSIWYG, all right? So the whole layout of it, it screams, I suppose, Word processor more than note-taking app. So everything requires explicit formatting, a bit like Word does. So if you want something bolded, you type it, you highlight it, you press bold. Or you can press bold, type something, and then press bold again just to turn bold off. Where I'm going with this, as I'm sure some people have already kind of twigged, this supports a lot of functionality, but the one thing it does not support is Markdown. I am a huge fan, a huge enormous fan of markdown and I was genuinely hoping that it would support it and it clearly doesn't. However, on the flip side, there are a number of graphical elements that a lot of other note-taking apps don't support, like tables of contents. Like I think you call it LaTeX is the official name of it, which is the mathematical notation language. It also has an embedded terminal built in, which I think you mentioned earlier on, Kevi, uh, that you can use to execute code blocks that exist within your notes. And I can see a real benefit to that kind of feature. I would definitely see that as a, as a plus. One thing I also noticed is that it supports what it calls Today's Node. It's like a journal page. It's called Insert Today's Node. So it'll create a brand new node for you, a new note with Today's Date on And it does it in a very structured format. It'll create a top-level node based on the year. So I've got one called 2023. It'll then create a sub-node based on the month. So it's called December. And then you'll have another one that's then, which is the actual note where you'll enter your note detail, which is like day of month, day of week. So it'll say today's, for example, will be 13 wed. And that's a really nice touch. There is a downside to that, which I'll go on to in a second. But as Kevin quite rightly pointed out, and he, he made a big deal of, which is quite right, is that. Cherry Tree does support tags. Metadata on objects like these is really, really important, particularly for searching. Nextcloud does support tags. Dendron does not. Now, it is possible to reorganise nodes and subnodes within the tree that you've created simply by picking them up, dragging them, and dropping them wherever you want them to appear, which is, is really nice. But the one thing I did notice is that there is a stupidly large proportion of the menuing system like the menu at the top of the, of the application, dedicated to doing exactly the same stuff. And I think that overcomplicates things. If you want to do something in with a particular node, go to the node and right-click on it, and it'll give you the options. But then those same options are also available in the tree menu. So it's I think it's redundancy. A personal opinion, of course. When it comes to the actual data file, so the, the file of your, of your of your notes, there are a number of different formats that you can store that in. Uh, one of them is a SQLite file, which you can optionally encrypt inside a zip file. You can create a single XML file, which can also be encrypted inside a, a, a zip file. Or you can create it in like a folders files-based format, according to the Unix philosophy, where everything is stored in a text file. But the formatting or the layout of that particular directory structure is... Is not particularly intuitive, in my opinion. If it was pure text, you'd be able to go into it and modify the data using a text editor. Ultimately, you can't do that because it's not obvious where your files are. You know, you know where the files are, but it's not obvious which file is the one that you're actually looking for. At the risk of over comparing that is something that both Nextcloud and Dendron implement incredibly well. From an aesthetic point of view, again, this is a, my opinion. The GUI just seems like a bit of a mess to me. I use dark mode. I use dark mode extensively. And the interface in dark mode is a mishmash of dark elements and light elements. Like there are some parts of the interface, like the tree view on the left and the header bar just above the notes that I think gives you the note title or possibly the note path is in light mode, whereas everything else is in dark. So it, it doesn't work well for me. The menuing system, as I already mentioned, not a huge fan of. I don't know. I really don't wish to sound offensive at all in what I'm saying here as, as, as a whole. But I think the developers had a great opportunity here to make a very, very simple note-taking application. But in the opinion of this reviewer, I think they've overcomplicated it. I think it's a lot more messy than it needs to be. Ultimately, the tools that I use currently do almost exactly the same as Cherrytree does. So, Kevy, you called it and you got the nail on the head there. This is not something I'm going to use because I'm already using tools that are equivalent to, if not better than, what Cherry Tree can offer. Of course, that is subjective. But this is likely to be a really good application, a good starter application, for somebody who doesn't currently use a note-taking app, specifically a linked note-taking app, because the ability to be able to to link to other notes within an existing note, I'm kind of using the words note and node interchangeably here, I do apologise. To be able to link to one from the other is a really, really great feature. So if you're building up documentation or you're building up just a daily journal, you want to be able to link to to other things that you've written. Absolutely brilliant. Really, really good. Functionally, it's as fully featured as any other note-taking app out there. Potentially even more so in some cases. But for me, I'm just finding it just too clunky and non-intuitive to the way that I personally work. So it is a good app. I think it has it has a lot of functionality that people would use, but it's not something I would personally be considering using or switching to.
0: No, oh, that's good, actually, that we are not exactly of the same opinion, so it's good to hear differing opinions. Mm. So, Andrew, how was your opinion?
1: Well, I'll keep it fairly brief, because I think between the two of you, you've covered a lot of ground, and I don't want to repeat anything you've said. One thing I would say is, uh, since I'm working in Slackware, I would immediately, and in this case I certainly did, go and look for a Slack build, and there wasn't a Slack build. So then I thought, well, I can build it myself from source. I've done that before, it's not a problem. And then immediately when I did that, I thought, "Hmm, there's some dependencies here which I could go and get and build. and Not a huge problem, but a lot of these dependencies are quite peculiar, and I don't think I would need them for anything else. So I'm not going to go that way. I was quite impressed at the range of options it provided for downloading the application. And one of them was an app image, which if you don't know, is a very self-contained, I guess it's some kind of compressed archive uh, that you can run in Linux. And I thought that it would contain all the dependencies that you would need at runtime course, when I build it, it's compile time dependencies and building dependencies that you would need. So I didn't expect that there'd be any trouble with AppImage, but it refused to launch. And it said it refused to launch because it had to have libthai. So l-libthai as in in T-H-A-I, as in Thailand. So the application wouldn't run unless it had support for the Thai language. Now, I don't need the Thai language, and so unsurprisingly, I don't have LibTai on my system. And I'm not going to install it just for one application. So, And I also should say that it's a little bit unusual. I've been very busy lately. And on other occasions, I would have temporarily installed libthai That was a Slack build. But I thought, well, there might be others. You know, if, if it wants Thai, it going to want Japanese, Chinese, God knows what. So I thought, no, I'm not going to go down that road either. Uh, So it just so happened, one of the things I was busy with was uh, doing some testing of an application of Windows inside a virtual machine. So I thought, well, it's got Windows builds. So I got a Windows build, which it turned out was inside a a 7-zip archive. So (laughs) ironically, I had to download and compile P7-zip on Linux in order to extract the contents of this archive and then the instructions were, this is the instructions on the Cherry Tree website, hunt around inside the unzipped archive until I found a .exe file to run. Went, okay, a bit weird, frankly, <laughs> but I'll do that. And I did, and I found it, and I ran it, and it worked fine. If you're a Windows user, being told to download a 7-zip archive, which Windows can't unzip natively, and then hunt around for an .exe somewhere inside it, yeah, isn't the most <laughs> user-friendly experience, but... Fine. Okay. We're a FOSS podcast. Yeah, it's a very unusual thing for me to do to try something out in Windows. But as I say, I did in this occasion. A bit odd. Now, after I launched the application, I think I created some nodes and subnodes before a pop-up appeared asking me about how I would like to store my content. Now, I don't think I asked it to save anything. So I don't know why after I created some nodes and nodes and subnodes specifically, why it then decided that I had to store it. And I was a bit puzzled. In fact, I was so puzzled that I just cancelled the window because I didn't understand what it was asking me to do. But then later on, it, it reappeared again. And then I thought, oh, and Dave's already mentioned this. It asked me how I would like to save it. So I could save it as an SQL SQLite file with ZZip compression, optionally with a password to encrypt it. At this point I got very confused because I had a subnode window asking me to input information that for some reason appeared in front of the window asking me where I'd like to save what I'd done so far which was puzzling because I hadn't actually asked it to save anything. Now eventually I realized why it was doing this and I would say Either before you do anything else, it should have asked me, where would you like to save your work as the first step? Or it shouldn't have asked me anything until I had elected to click the save button or save as or something. And then it should have prompted me, where would you like to save this? How would you like to save it? So this was not user friendly. And in fact, it required knowledge of what 7-zip was, what compression was, what SQLite was, So really, if you're a a beginner user, this would just be completely baffling and confusing. And actually, I found it quite confusing. So anyway, so I got past that, understood what was going on, and I elected to save it as a SQLite file with no encryption and no compression. I then was quite impressed at the richness of content I could put into my note, I could put in tables. As Dave mentioned, I could have latex formatting. So latex isn't just for mathematics, but it's a whole document creation syntax, although its main power, that, as Dave said, is is for mathematics. And that appeals to me, because I am somebody who does a bit of maths now and again. So yeah, I appreciated that. Not only that, it had, you could input code. So I wrote a little bit of, a little fragment of dummy C code. And not only did it include that, but it had some basic syntax highlighting, which worked quite well. I was able to insert an image into all of this as well, as Kevi has detailed, uh, though it wasn't drag and drop. It looked like drag and drop would work, but it didn't. I had to import it via the menu or the button. I did hit a bug, a fairly major bug, when I tried to toggle various formats. So for example, if I selected some text and then tried to make it strike through, a little window would open and it would say, error, no text was selected. But text was selected. The text I wanted Strictly to apply to. This applied to every format, whether it was superscript, subscript, headings, whatever. It always said no text was selected, even if it was. So that was a a pretty clear bug, to be honest. Yeah, that didn't hugely impress me, I have to say. Hmm, I wonder if that's just a
0: Windows one, because I've got it actually open in front of me. I've got all my text jam notes on this. And yeah. strike throughs just worked fine. Yep. I don't
1: know. <laughs> yeah, it could. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I did wonder that because I didn't. Uh, yeah, but clearly that was a bug. But yeah, maybe it was restricted to Windows, as you say. One thing that did impress me was a huge range of import possibilities. It could import from a lot of different sources, including other note-taking apps. Weirdly, it could even import from its own file formats. Now. I was a bit puzzled by this because why would you import from your own file format? Isn't that the same as open? Well, clearly not because it must be that you could import a sub node into a node or something like that. I didn't quite dig into why it could import from its own format, which I think was the .ctb file extension as it happens. Maybe that's useful. I didn't quite see why, but yeah. But I have to say, I have to credit it again for having a huge range of import possibilities. So that's really my main criticism of it. I am very much a person who likes to see a tool, sort of the sort of Unix, Linux philosophy of one tool that does one thing and does it well rather than a, a multi-tool approach. That, that is the philosophy I like to take. Cherry Tree is trying to do an awful lot for a note-taking app. And I think as somebody already said, it actually resembles a word processor more than a note-taking app. But it's not a replacement for LibreOffice or Microsoft Word or Windows. It certainly isn't a word processor. It's not a note-taking app in my book. It's far too complicated for that. I use Nextcloud Notes. My show notes for this that I'm reading off right now are taking using Nextcloud Notes. And what I like about that is it's very simple. It supports markdown and rich text, but not much else. You know, it's note-taking. It's not... It's not got images and LaTeX and tables. I don't want this of a note taking app. I want it to be simple. I want it to work on my phone when I've only got my phone and I want to be able to work on it using any old text editor that I fancy when I'm on my laptop. And Nextcloud Notes does all of those things extremely well. So yes, Cherry Tree does a lot of things that Nextcloud Notes does not do. But there are things I don't want from a note taking app. I want rapid text entry. That's what I want with a, a very basic structuring, which Markdown will provide. So yeah, if you want a desktop app and it is only a desktop app with almost word processor, but not quite word processor features, then Cherry Tree is what you're looking for. But unfortunately, that is not what I'm looking for. So. Yeah, it falls between a rock and a hard place, or literally between a word processor and a note-taking app for me. So, yeah, I couldn't see much use for it. I'm sure other people out there will find a use for it, but just not for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's actually good, though. Like I said, we're all differing opinions, so, uh, like I said, I'm not complaining of that at all. So, yeah, like I said, if you're wanting a... Uh, if, if it sounds like something you're interested in, then, yeah, go and check it out. If not, you have have the you have also have the freedom to say no. <laughs> Right then. So, Andrew, I believe your track is next. What did you line up for us?
1: Well, it is an artist I discovered in magnitude called Arie Frankfurter. Not German, or not originally German, or maybe originally German, but he lives in uh, California in the USA. And the track is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen.
0: And now we come to the last segment of the show. And for a change, we actually do have some feedback. So people have been contacting directly, though. So, Andrew, what feedback can you relay to us?
1: Well, I, I got some nice feedback from Dave Morris, I want to say nice nice and specific on things that we mentioned in Gifts for Geeks, Talks Jam 106. So I was lucky enough to meet Dave and Ken Fallon. I think I mentioned that previously a couple of weeks ago. But she sent me this in Telegram last week after listening to g- Gifts for Geeks. Uh, first of all, he mentions, we me- I mentioned, I think, some products from Lidl, uh, binoculars, and he says he was told by an HPR person that there are Lidl stores in the US, but mainly in the eastern states. Uh, Aldi, or Aldi, have been there longer, apparently, and are spread more widely. On the second point, this came up last week, he g- gave me some more information about his ordering of the Raspberry Pi 5 He Pre-ordered his in September and then got an update in late October saying he would be receiving it in November, which he did. So that's how he got his Raspberry Pi 5 before any of the rest of us, unsurprisingly, by getting his finger out and ordering it in advance, which I did not do. And then finally, on the Gifts for Geeks episode, I mentioned a workbench also from Lidl and Dave has actually bought one of these. And he says it's fine, though not as good as a old black and decker, which he's had since the 1970s. Let's face it, nothing is as good now as it was in the 1970s or before. Uh, don't make them like they used to. He says the little top is faced with MDF, but the black and decker is a chunk of plywood. Having two is good if you're making desktops or trimming doors or similar, I find. I'm very impressed that uh, Dave trims his own doors. Kudos to you, Dave. Talking of Dave's, Dave, I believe you have some more feedback.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So just scouring the Fediverse, where you can find us at podcast.social slash at TuxJam. We have had a number of threads started by various people. Obviously, our superfan and recently voted in archivist, official TuxJam archivist, Solar Spider, has been promoting us left, right and centre. Our last episode, uh, he posted about as well. Uh, So thank you to Peter. Uh, R.L. Dane, who we have mentioned on the show before, is also spending a lot of time pimping our show out to various other people as well. So we really do appreciate your support too. I think that was pretty much all from the Fediverse. However, we did also have a comment in one of our Telegram groups from Al, who is one of the hosts of the Currently on Hiatus admin-admin podcast. Without actually using these words, I think he's accusing us of making him spend money because after our uh, Gifts for Geeks episode where I recommended the Data Frog SF2000 portable handheld games console, he went out and bought one. So <laughs> he, I, th- I believe he has placed it under the tree and we'll be opening it at Christmas. And Kevy, I've just realised it was you, so thanks for dropping us in that one, has suggested that both myself and Al... Uh, record a segment for tux jam or and or uh, hpr as a kind of a, a, a combined review of the device which i think is a great idea and i know i up for it as well thanks al for letting us know that you've uh, you've gone and bought this as well and i i genuinely hope that it lives up to the hype that i gave it last episode
0: yeah well there was one other bit of feedback i got from peter in person as well well not in person obviously because he's on the other side of the pond, but uh, I was speaking to him on Tuesday night, and he had actually said he had looked up the arcade rug, and he really wants one. <laughs> so <laughs> it's gone down very well.
2: Yes. I, 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 I don't know if I told you, I, I sent the link to Caroline uh, over that rug when, we were, when, you, when you mentioned it on the Gifts for Geeks, and Caroline's response was just simply... Ooh. (laughs) And I think I mentioned at the time, we are in the market for a new rug, but I don't think it's going to fit in with the decor we have at the moment. So we will be redecorating.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) At least uh, you got more positive response than I got. I think think there was less chance of me getting that rug.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: So let me get this straight, Dave. You're going to paint Sprite's 8 by 8 sprites in the wall so you can justify having a arcade rug.
2: I can dream, right? Yes, and he's going to
0: replace the bookcase with a couple of arcade cabinets as well, just to kind of fit in.
2: Yeah, 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 because I have more money than sense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it. Right, there is an event that hasn't actually happened yet, but by the time this show is released, it's already going to have happened. So we're just going to mention it. We're not going to go into any detail a pod crawl took place, well it's about to take place on Saturday the 16th given it's the 14th right now at time of recording like I said there's no chance we going get it beforehand so we hope if you're listening and you were there, that you enjoyed it and if you're listening and you weren't there then why not and please come along to the next one
1: Yeah, wibbly wobbly yeah, timey that. wimey thing
0: going on there <laughs> Yes, aye that's it. So if you want to get a hold of us, then you can. You can send an email to the show. It's tuxjam at otherside.network. If you want to check us out on social media, it's tuxjam at podcast.social. If you want to get a hold of us indip- individually, then to be honest, I'm not really anywhere these days apart from Telegram when I'm at kevy49. Uh, I am at kevy49 on Twitter. Never use it. I'm at kevy on mastodon.me.uk. Again, I've not closed the account. I just, I'm guilty of not using it. I'm not really that much of a social media person these days. Who has the time? But uh, I am still around and you, I will eventually get you. It might be six months late, especially if you contact me on social media. But uh, yeah. So Dave, how do people get a hold of yourself?
2: Yeah, but to be fair, I, I don't think I've ever really been active on social media. If somebody mentions me, I'll pick it up and respond to it. But otherwise, you know, ambient messages, I tend to miss those completely. But uh, I'm the Love Bug on Telegram and Twitter and Facebook and and probably still MySpace, actually. But you can also find me on the Fediverse over at the Lovebug at mastodon.me.uk as well.
1: Uh, and if you want to get in contact with me I'm McNalu M-C-N-A-L-U on Twitter, on Mastodon uh, the same server that Dave just mentioned uh, and on Telegram as well, McNalu basically if you see a McNalu on the internet then that's probably me and uh, uh, if you say something geeky at me and I don't respond enthusiastically then it's an imposter, let me know <laughs>
0: Right, then. So we are going to bring this show to an end. It is the last show of the year, and it's traditional in Scotland to sing "Old Lang Syne." So this has become a bit of a kind of thing. I've been trying to get "Old Lang Syne" for the final track the last few years, and yes, of course, I'm just already doing the handshake, so we can easily do that. So the this one is by Highland Saga, and we really do have to thank Highland Saga for actually letting us play this because uh, they don't release it under Creative Commons, but I. Did email them and they got back to me within a couple of days. So, yeah, go check HighlandSaga.com out. Uh, They seem to have plenty of music on uh, YouTube. So, yeah, have a listen to that if you want. That's, of course, after listening to this track here. So, on that note, it's a goodbye from me and a Merry Christmas and Happy New
2: Year. And it's a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from me as well no witty sign off from me this time round a very merry christmas and a happy new year and we will see you in 2024
3: to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows on otherside.network